All right, well, let's get started since everybody's uh, seated already. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, um, uh, to those of you uh, who are here today, thanks especially for uh, making it for the second day. I'm Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies, a title I believe to be redundant here at Cato, and I'm also uh, working on my Ph.D. at MIT in political science. A couple uh, logistical announcements before we get started. Uh, we still got some seats in here if people outside want to want to get seats in the back. Um, secondly, uh, please shut off your cell phones uh, if you brought them. Uh, also, uh, just on seats, please don't save seats for people who aren't here since seats are limited. And uh, when, we, when we end, if you uh, get up and go, then you've got to give up your seat, uh, even if you're leaving just for a short time. Um, uh, on questions, uh, please wait for the mic. Uh, please don't make speeches and uh, identify yourself when you ask a question. Uh, our, our panel this morning has the exciting title, Domestic Security, Risk Management, and Cost-Benefit Analysis. Let me just say a word about this before we start. Risk management, I think, has become a sort of a popular buzzword in homeland security, uh, but its definition remains, uh, I think, to most people at least, a little murky. Uh, one, made, one way to define it might be to use resources effectively, that is, to put them towards risks where they have the highest expected value. I think a better definition, to me at least, is to spend in ways that can survive cost-benefit analysis, and that's the other part of the title, of course. Um, so we want to talk today about how one might do that in Homeland Security, uh, not just in the Department of Homeland Security, but in, in the rest of the government, which is uh, in the United States engaged in Homeland Security activities, uh, what the political obstacles are to doing so, and whether or not they're insurmountable, those political obstacles. Uh, so with that, uh, I'll just introduce the uh, presenters. We have four people. Um, we're going to have uh, James Lewis present a paper that uh, he's written, and then we'll have sort of responses from the other participants. Um, James Lewis is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he writes on technology, national security, and the international economy. Uh, before joining CSIS, he worked in the federal government as a foreign service officer and a member of the Senior Executive Service. Our second speaker, Cindy Williams, is a principal research scientist at the Security Studies Program at MIT, where she was lucky enough to have an office near the cubicle that I shared. Um, before coming to MIT, she worked at MITRE and at the Congressional Budget Office, where she led the National Security Division, and her research uh, focuses on national security budgets. She's co-authored or uh, written uh, or edited several uh, important books uh, on that topic. Lately, she's been writing about homeland security spending. Bruce Schneier, our third speaker, is the senior uh, I'm sorry, Chief Security Technology Officer at BT Counterpane. He's the author of eight books, uh, including uh, the recently, recently published Schneier on Security and another book that I've actually read called Beyond Fear, Thinking Sensibly About Security in, Uncertain, in an Uncertain World, uh, which I recommend to everybody. And he's also written hundreds of articles and academic papers. He's always writing op-eds and going on TV and stuff like that. He's got a terrific blog called Schneier on Security and a newsletter called Cryptogram. Uh, our fourth speaker, Jeremy Shapiro, is the research director of the Center of the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution and a fellow there in foreign policy studies. Uh, that actually has more to do with what we're talking about today than it might initially seem because uh, Jeremy writes a lot about uh, how European approaches to counterterrorism are different uh, from our own and where they work and don't work. Uh, he's also written articles about the uh, need for threat-based homeland security policy. And uh, prior to Brookings, he worked at RAND. Uh, so with that, I'll turn the uh, podium over to James. Thanks, Ben, and good morning to everyone. Um, 
Somehow when I started uh, thinking about this panel, I got the words uh, effective counterterrorism stuck in my head. And so I want to start with that because one of the things that we want to discuss, or at least I want to discuss, is um, homeland security and counterterrorism are different. And effective counterterrorism and homeland security are different. And in some ways, uh, what we do in homeland security may not have that much effect in uh, preventing terrorist attacks. Okay. So that's kind of where I started. And to get to that point, I had to do a couple things. Um, what is effective counterterrorism? Uh, for me, there are parallels with counterinsurgency. Uh, this is in some ways similar to an insurgency. Uh, the people who are engaged in it uh, draw on a tradition of violence and terrorism that goes back at least to the 1950s. Um, and so when you think about this, we might want to think about what are the things that we need to do? What are the things that actually protect us? Uh, for me, those fall into certain categories, intelligence activities, collecting information on these groups, penetrating these groups, disrupting their plans, recruiting members of the groups, and, of course, uh, surveilling communications, which is one of the most valuable tools we have on the intelligence side. There's a heavy law enforcement component, and there's a little bit of an overlap there between law enforcement and domestic intelligence. Difficult for the U.S. to sort out, not so hard for some other countries. But when we look at a lot of what actually prevents terrorist attacks, it's the efforts of the FBI here in the United States to penetrate groups, to find out what they're going on, what's going on with them, in combination with communication surveillance and the work of intelligence agencies overseas. There's a diplomatic element to this. We have to find people who will coordinate with us, who will cooperate with us. This is crucial for effective counterterrorism. And these people include other governments. Sometimes the governments are nice governments, sometimes they're not. Uh, we have to find ways to, to cooperate with them. We have to win their support. We also have to win their, their support for the idea of choking off the things that produce terrorism. Now, this is not a pitch for development aid. Uh, I don't think you're going to be able to fix uh, the economies or the political systems of the places that generate terrorism in anything like real time. So when you hear, if only we could get these countries to be more, more rich and prosperous, if we could get them to be more rich and prosperous, which we've been trying to do for at least 40 years, they would be rich and prosperous. So there is not a development solution to counterterrorism, but it's something you have to think about uh, in the long term. There's a military element. I'm not sure how useful the military is. The special forces clearly have a significant role. When you get into conventional forces, um, the effect can be counterproductive. Uh, one of the things that we know from interviewing terrorists is they have a sense of uh, outrage or uh, indignation over the violence that's been inflicted on some of their countries or what they see as a, a larger polity, uh, usually using conventional weapons, right? So every time an F-16 accidentally blows up a wedding party, we've helped, uh, we've helped a terrorist. And if we can avoid that, that would be good. That's... To say the military tool is useful, it's essential, but we've got to be careful with it. Um, finally, there's an element of border control and domestic control. Again, that overlaps a little bit with the FBI's mission, but you do have to have effective border controls, effective immigration policies, effective controls on transportation um, with people coming into the country. Less so on goods, I would say. That's effective counterterrorism. That's what prevents attacks. Um, but most of that isn't done by the Department of Homeland Security. Most of it is in what we spend uh, the, a lot of the money on, the way OMB defines uh, Homeland Security, which is to look at the domestic activities. And the crucial point that came up yesterday and will come up again today, I think, is how do we determine risk and where do we decide the risks are? 
in the 1990s, there were a set of studies that said the Cold War is over. What will the new security environment look like for the United States? And most of these studies coalesced around two basic ideas. We would face terrorism as a threat. We would face it domestically uh, in the United States. And terrorists would use WMD. Uh, my view of this is that they got it half right, right? We, terrorism is clearly a threat. We do face it in the United States. Terrorists are unlikely to use WMD. Uh, why is that? Uh, first of all, it's hard to uh, weaponize this stuff. It's hard to make it. It's hard to obtain it. Second, it's hard to deploy. It's hard to feel confident that it will work. Um, it's just not as good as a conventional bomb. That's unfortunate in some ways because terrorists prefer bombs. Um, even their training manual say bombs are best, right? Bombs and guns, conventional violence. That's the basic thrust. This is not to say that terrorist groups have not explored the idea of using WMD, but at the end of the day, they haven't adopted it. Yet we have got a policy or a set of policies that focus very much on preventing or recovering from WMD attacks. Uh, I think there's a number of problems with this, and this gets back to this estimate of risk. Um, when you ask how do you estimate risk, uh, I think the official formula is you look at the probability of the attack and the consequences. And so, of course, on WMD, the consequences could be very high. Um, what we've tended to do is ignore the probability side. So one of the key phrases for thinking about this sort of attack is suspend disbelief. And there's a long tradition in American security thinking of over-exaggerating uh, potential threats, so we, it's not a complete surprise. But we tend to ignore the probability of an attack, right? And I think you saw, especially in the last panel yesterday, a bit of a debate over how likely some of these modes of attack are. Um, if you try and increase the likelihood of assessing probability, which is difficult and maybe too difficult for the U.S., uh, I think you would get a different view of what sort of policies we might want to pursue, what sort of spending we might want to do when it comes to homeland security. Um, we tend to overestimate the vulnerabilities of the United States. Uh, I'll just say that flat out. Uh, this is a big country. Uh, there are many thousands of targets, right? Uh, an attack that would cripple the United States or end its way of life is inconceivable, short of uh, the use of many nuclear weapons, right? Um, it's not something terrorists are going to be able to do. So the probability of an attack that is exceptionally damaging is very low. The probability of an overreaction by the United States uh, is exceptionally high, right? That's probably where we see a greater degree of risk. Um, I was in a war game uh, about a year ago where we, uh, we had um, a terrorist uh, attack, and we were the supposed, we were the, some of us were the government, some of us were the terrorists, and we were supposed to respond to it. And at the end of the war game, when we assessed the outcome of it, what we found is the terrorist attacks themselves weren't particularly damaging, you know, if you want to put this in a military context. They weren't enough to cripple the United States to do immense damage. But the reaction of the United States did far more damage than the actual terrorist attacks, right? Now, this was a war game. This was hypothetical. But you can, you can all think of, of uh, things that might support this sort of contention. Every time you go into an airport and you see that the threat level is orange, um, what does that do? It, it, I don't know what it does for you. For me, it just, it's sort of an annoyance at this point. You can't lower the threat level because that's politically unacceptable. You're saying, well, we're not at risk, right? We can never go to a lower threat level. 
At the same time, you can't really raise the threat level because once you raise the threat level, it triggers all sorts of spending provisions and the operations of uh, airports and train stations and all sorts of other facilities become much more expensive. So we've created a system to guard against highly improbable threats and to detect them and to prepare to respond to them. Some of this is not bad, but a lot of it is probably unnecessary. There is a tendency in the U.S. to think that spending equals security. And in the case of Homeland Security, I would argue we need to try and back away from that a little bit. Uh, we've tended to conflate the risks of WDMD and terrorism. We overestimate vulnerabilities. We overestimate the probability of attacks when we don't ignore it. Um, why did this happen? Some part of this is the studies that uh, took place in the 90s. Um, good studies for the most part, but they focused on these two problems. The second reason I think this happened has more to do with emotion, which was the attacks of September 11th were dreadful. Uh, they were unexpected um, by many people, and they skewed in some ways American thinking about terrorist attacks. We have a sense of vulnerability that perhaps we didn't have before. And so that sense of vulnerability, that emotional drive, tends to make it hard for us to... to stop and say, um, what are the best things we could do to prevent uh, future attacks? So for me, I come back to some of these uh, basic points. We have um, a counterterrorism program that is relatively effective, right? Uh, is it 100 percent effective? Fortunately, you know, for the last few years, it has been 100 percent effective inside the United States. Um, will we always be lucky when we face determined and inventive opponents? Um, possibly not, right? But the things to do to prevent that are, are very different from many of the things we spend money on, right? They are intelligence. They are law enforcement. They are diplomatic efforts. Um, we've tended to apply uh, kind of the military technology model that we used very successfully for national security, have a military problem, get scientists and engineers to work on a new technology to solve it. We've tended to take that model and try to apply it to homeland security. Here's a homeland security problem. A terrorist will smuggle a nuclear weapon in, in a container, set scientists and engineers off to solve this problem. Um, we might want to take this one apart. In the paper, the part I went after was BioShield, where, and since you already heard about that yesterday, we spend a lot of money uh, for something that's unlikely to happen. Um, the container one is another good example. If a terrorist manages to acquire a nuclear weapon, and this is a serious threat, right? This is something we should be very worried about. It will not happen within the United States, right, if it occurs. So we should be spending a tremendous amount of effort to prevent the acquisition of nuclear weapons. Um, if they manage to acquire one, the last thing they're going to do is put it in a package and lock it in a container and kiss and wave goodbye and see it sail off. They've just spent an immense amount of effort. They're going to keep this thing, their arms wrapped around this thing, right? They're not going to let it out of their sight. So all this stuff about standing conta scanning containers for nuclear weapons is just, uh, you know, um, we come then to a fundamental problem, which is you could say, okay, it's traditional for America to spend a lot of money to improve security. We can't object to that. Um, and I'm okay with that as long as it doesn't interfere with either the economy or with civil liberties. Now, you could say there is an opportunity cost. We're spending a lot of money that really doesn't do anything to reduce the risk of terrorist attack. But the part we have to watch out for is this self-inflicted damage, right, that we will be scanning every container when it comes in. You still see complaints. Customs isn't scanning 100 percent of containers. They shouldn't be scanning 100 percent of containers. 
part of what we want to think about is where do you want to defend yourself? Um, the motto for the United States ever since December 7, 1941, has been to defend ourselves as far away as possible from the American homeland. That is where we want to concentrate our efforts, right? What we're talking about in many cases when you get to homeland security is point defense. If you're, de if you're relying on point defense, it means you've failed. If we catch a terrorist at an airport trying to board a plane, it means we've failed. That's what we want to prevent. We don't want them getting close to the airport, right? So what are the things that would prevent that? And when you go through and look at the policies that have kind of accreted over the last seven years, shaped by emotion, shaped by this three minutes. Does that mean I should talk faster or slower? Yeah. Faster. Okay. Not at all. I'm only halfway through. I'll have to talk really fast. No, I won't. Um, I'll, I'll stop. Um, no, I completely forgot what I was saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I would, I would refocus what we do by looking a bit more at the people who are fighting with us. And this is sort of a traditional military analysis there's a critique of it, which is they're inventive, they're going to try different things, we're going to be surprised. Absolutely right, which is why I don't get hung up on spending a lot on fortifying one particular thing. We'll have the world's best harbors, best protected harbors, they'll drive a truck across the Canadian border. We'll make the airport, the airplane a flying fortress, they'll find something else to do. Nimbleness is the key here. But when you look at what terrorists do, it's conventional weapons, it's things that are of symbolic value or have uh, high population density, strong attraction for transportation, airplanes or trains, um, some interest in nuclear weapons, the one thing they could possibly get. It's a very different kind of threat than the kind of amorphous threat we've, uh, we've created where there's bioweapons and chemical weapons and radiological weapons. Radiological weapons are another good one to think about because uh, you can see, for example, uh, some studies that say if a single radiological weapon detonated in an American city, it would cause thousands of casualties and perhaps end our way of life. Uh, I have that quote in the paper. Um, in fact, if you go to the uh, Department of Energy's website and read about a radiological weapon, a radiological weapon is basically a bomb, terrorist-like bomb, with some sort of radioactive material in it. And when the bomb goes off, the radioactive material is spread around. It's spread around for a couple blocks. And the advice of the Department of Energy is if, if you're near one of these explosions and you aren't hurt in the blast from the explosion, here's what you should do. Uh, you should walk away, uh, change your clothes, and maybe take a shower. Okay. That doesn't sound like the end of the American way of life. It might be for my kids who don't change their clothes. <laughs> um, we, we have this whole mythology that's grown up. And you know, one way to think about it is, is the probability of one of these attacks greater than the probability of an asteroid strike? If we announced suddenly that we were developing an asteroid defense shield, there would be screams of pain. But we are developing defenses that are for potential attacks that are almost as improbable, right? Look at what the terrorists do. Think about the way to disrupt what they are, and we will be safe. Uh, putting a lot of efforts into static defenses against exotic threats does not make us any safer. Should I stop there? Sure, sure. My goal, I was supposed to inflame you, so if I haven't, let me know, and I'll try and say a few more. I wasn't warned to inflame you, um, so I'll probably just bore you to tears if you didn't bring your coffee and you might want to go get it, because I'm going to talk about money. Um, James said that 
we in the U.S. have a tendency to think that spending equals security. I, I don't think that spending equals security, but I do think that spending equals policy. In other words, the choices, the, the broad policy choices that we are, are making are well reflected in the money that we're spending. Um, and so with that thought in mind, I, I want to ask two questions. And the first is, James also said that we're not making sensible choices regarding the risk um, that's posed by various terrorist threats, and that we're also not making very sensible choices in the way that we deal with abating those risks. Um, and so if we're not using some risk management method to decide how much money we're spending, in other words, to decide what our broad policies are going to be, what are we using? What methods is the federal government using to decide how to spread homeland security money among the various policy choices that we have? Prevention of things coming in, law enforcement, um, the, what's going on at the airports with the TSA, uh, prevention or pr protection of individual sites, um, critical sites, or or preparedness to respond in the event that a terrorist act um, actually occurs. What are we doing? And so that's my first sec uh, question. And then the second one is: What could the Obama administration and the 111th Congress do to change that? And I'm going to look at those two questions in turn. So let me start with the first. You probably know that in 2003, the Department of Homeland Security was formed out of 22 existing legacy agencies, one of which was more independent, but the others came over from, from as pieces of various uh, other departments. Those 22 legacy agents, agency were, agencies were generally combined into seven main operating components of the Department of Homeland Security, and you know them. It's the Coast Guard, Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Citizenship and Immigration Services, FEMA, and TSA. Those are the seven main operating components. Now, each of those seven inherited a budget in 2003 when it came over to the department from whatever department it was coming over from. So it basically brought its budget with it. Now, what's happened since then? Since then, basically every year, each of those main operating components has gotten as its budget what it had the last year, the previous year, with a boost for inflation plus a boost that's over and above inflation, and that boost was about the same percentage level for each of those units. So what's the result today? The result today is that if you ask what share of the total Homeland, Department of Homeland Security budget is held by TSA, well, it's virtually the same share as it held in 2003 when it first came into the department. In other words, as it held as a legacy agency. And the same thing goes for the Coast Guard, for the Customs and Border Protection, and so on. In other words, basically what we have is constant shares budgeting. That's the decision that's made within the Department of Homeland Security. Now, you might well ask, well, what about the other departments? Don't they have work in Homeland Security as well? And the answer is yes, they do. In fact, one of the 
not very much discussed um, uh, issues related to the Department of Homeland Security is that the home, that department controls only about 50 percent of the total federal Homeland Security budget. Where's the rest of it? Well, about a quarter of the total federal budget for Homeland Security is in the Department of Defense. A lot of it for um, force protection, but some of the money there is for um, for biological defense and some other um, related issues. A lot of the Homeland Security money of, that the federal government spends is in the Health and Human Services Department, where most of it is related to bio uh, bio defense. Um, and then a fair amount is in the Department of Just- Justice because, remember, the FBI stayed with the Department of Justice. It did not move over into the new department. So half of the spending is not in the Department of Homeland Security. Well, how do those agencies get their spending for Homeland Security? Basically the same way. There's a notion in the Office of Management and Budget of the White House that the Homeland Security spending should get a boost of some percentage each year. Last year, I think it was 4%. And that 4% is applied across the board. Now, there have been some big increases in what's called Homeland Security in some areas, and the one that's most notable is in the Department of Defense. Although a lot of that spending isn't really new spending, it's just a new definition that that OMB permitted the Department of Defense to use starting in 2006, saying that a lot of what they've always been doing is actually homeland security. So generally, we have constant shares budgeting across the whole federal government for every aspect of homeland security. Now, this is sort of the top levels, the broad levels. What's going on inside some of those components may be somewhat different. For example, the Coast Guard, I know, has very detailed work going on in risk assessment, and they, they are genuinely trying to do a risk management approach to their budget. But by and large, when you're looking at the broad trade-offs that the United States could be making, should we spend more on prevention or should we spend more on uh, protection? Should we spend more on law enforcement, or should we spend more on getting things ready so that we can respond more effectively in case there is a terrorist attack, those decisions are not being made in any deliberate fashion. In fact, the only decision that's being made is how we did it last year was fine, so let's do it again next year. And that's been going on since 2003. It's now 2009. This is not how things were envisioned in 2002 when people talked about the value of assembling all these 22 agencies into a single department in the Department of Homeland Security. In fact, advocates of a consolidated department saw the authority over the budget as the single most important tool the the new Secretary of Homeland Security would have in managing risk in getting control of the department as an executive, um, and in getting some level of cost effectiveness um, for the the homeland security effort uh, that the federal government is making. And in fact, Tom Ridge, the first secretary, said in 2002, before the department was set up, that he would use the budget tool to shift dollars from areas where they were less useful to the areas where they would best reduce the risk. He, he literally committed to that and to use those dollars cost-effectively. 
But in fact, with even though Homeland Security budgets since that time have more than doubled, um, we haven't seen that kind of shift. We haven't seen anything like that kind of shift. Um, and, you know, with all the money being added to Homeland Security, it would have been easy because you wouldn't have even had to take money away from one unit to give it to another. You could just add all the money to the units that, that, where you thought the risk could be bought down the best. Okay, enough said about that. What could the Obama administration and the 111th Congress do to change this situation? Well, the first thing to know is that you'd have to start at the top. You'd have to start with the White House in the executive office of the president. Why? Because the Department of Homeland Security only has 50% of the money. So if you want to make a big change here, you need to start at the top looking at the money that's in the Department of Defense, the money that's in the Department of Health and Human Service, Services, the money that's in the FBI, as well as the money that's in the Department of Homeland Security. Now, it strikes me that we need some way within that executive office of the president to take a hard look at the risks posed and the various potential solutions to risk, prevention, preparedness, and so on. We need some way of drawing a thread across the various choices that we have for Homeland Security. And it strikes me that it, it, you can't do this just as a policy exercise. You need to do it as a policy exercise and a money exercise at the, whole, at the same time, which tells me within the executive office of the president, the two places to look are OMB, the Office of Management and Budget for the money side, and what now is the Homeland Security Council and is um, likely to be headed by John Cannon. It's those two groups together that need, need to do some genuine policy analyses and make some genuine decisions about which things we're going to prefer um, and make those stick, make those choices stick among the departments. So that's the first thing that has to be done. Now, there already is a notion of a quadrennial Homeland Security Review. In fact, Congress in 2007, I think, it required that the new administration conduct a quadrennial Homeland Security review that will be due sometime toward the end of this year. But the way Congress wrote that is that quadrennial Homeland Security review will be conducted by Janet Napolitano, the new Secretary of Homeland Security, not at the White House level. So it seems to me that would be a really good start, but to shift that up to the White House level. In other words, have a review that links your strategy to your risk, links your programs to, to your strategy, and links your money to your programs, and have that at the White House level. I think that would be an ideal way to start. What about inside the Department of Homeland Security? Inside the department, there, somebody needs to be conducting some, some studies, some broad trade-off studies, looking across these very strong components, these very strong operating components, and giving serious consideration to the potential for, sh for getting better policy choices by shifting some money from one to another. Um, and in the past, the department 
since it was formed, has had a relatively weak PA&E, Program Analysis and Evaluation Group, that was not up to doing that. They're building up their PA&E today as we speak. And this summer, for the first time, they did some small trade-off studies, looking at small things. Um, over the next year or so, I'm hoping that they will start doing big trade-off studies where they really start looking at some big issues. Just for example, why are there three Air Forces still in the Department of Homeland Security? If this is a consolidated department, why do they still have three Air Forces? Okay, and finally, what about Congress? Well, what allowed the administration to do this constant shares budget? What fostered that? One of the things that made it easy for the administration to continue with that constant shares budgeting within the Department of Homeland Security is that there is no single authorizing committee in either chamber that has jurisdiction for the Department of Homeland Security. Instead, the jurisdiction for that department is splintered across multiple departments. Transportation still has a big role, for example, in the Coast Guard. So with a back door through the Congress for any operating component of the Department of Homeland Security that wants a different answer than the answer it got, which is you're going down, he's going up, with that back door always open, we'll always have this problem. And so I think Congress needs to look very carefully, really um, give serious consideration to shifting that by realigning its committee structure to, to, to reflect the new department. Short of that, at least I think Congress needs to, to decide on its own that from now on, every two years at least, it's going to have, a, um, it's going to have an authorizing act for Homeland Security. That at least, even if they didn't change the committee structure, at least that would be a forcing function for the committees to work together, um, the, all these various committees of jurisdiction to work together and push through uh, a, some genuine policy change in the Department of Homeland Security. Thank you. Hi, good morning. Uh, one of the neat things about going even on the second day of this event is a lot of things uh, have been said that I would have said, so I, I can just sort of skip over them. I think it's, it's been a great event so far, and thanks for Cato for, for putting this together. I, I, I've learned a lot, and I hope you have. Uh, I want to mention two concepts to sort of help explain sort of what we've been seeing in the past couple of days. The first one is something called security theater. And security theater is a uh, security measure designed to look good but not actually do anything. An example might be, if you remember in the months after 9-11, we had National Guard troops in our airports. They were after airport security, sitting there on rubber mats with uniforms and big guns. Those guns had no bullets. And probably best because they were like 18, and I don't know if we really trust them in a situation. <laughs> but that was security theater, designed to make people feel better but not actually do very much. Uh, the other phrase is a movie plot threat. And a movie plot threat is an overly specific threat that we think about. And you remember this, right? Terrorists with crop dusters and terrorists uh, with scuba gear. And, and we heard yesterday about the infected terrorists going on an airplane, right? I mean, those are very specific threats that we tend to resonate with and respond to. And what I want to talk about here is less about actual security and more about 
how we perceive it. Because I think if we're going to understand priorities and budgeting and trade-offs and what to do, we need to understand how we think about it. So security is actually two different things, right? There's a feeling and a reality, and they're different. You can be secure even though you don't know it, and you can feel secure even if you're not. Right? They're not the same. And we, I think we really need to split them apart and talk about both of them separately. Language has a problem here because we use the same words for both concepts. So economically, security is a trade-off. Right? There's no such thing as absolute security. Despite sort of late 20th century rhetoric to the contrary, life is risk. There's no such thing as risk-free existence. And security always involves trade-offs. Right? You know, we can... Uh, when I was uh, growing up, I grew up in New York City, and I had friends who lived in a gated community who gave up some freedom of movement for some security. Right? So there are extreme trade-offs, and there are, there are basic ones. The question to ask, we've been hearing a lot of, is this security measure effective? Right? That's the wrong question. Is it a good use of a security dollar? Right? We would all be safer if we wore a bulletproof vest. We have decided that living where we are, that it's sort of not worth the cost and the inconvenience and loss of fashion sense. I was talking with Jeremy just before this panel, and he told me there's a stat that about two-thirds of automobile-related deaths can be avoided if we all wore helmets in our cars. I'll guarantee you none of you will go out and do that, even though driving is the single most dangerous thing you probably do in your life. Right? Security is a trade-off. These trade-offs are personal. Right? They're, they're, they're less about math and more about how we feel. There's no right or wrong. Some of us have a burglar arm, some of us don't. Right? They're based on intuition more than data. And we make these trade-offs every day. It's part of being alive. Right? Uh, I mean, everybody does it. All species do it. Imagine a rabbit in a field eating grass. The rabbit sees a fox. He's going to make a security trade-off. Should I stay or should I flee? And the rabbits that are good at it will tend to live and reproduce, and the rabbits that are bad at it will either get eaten or starve. So a question I've been looking at for the past couple of years is, right, as a successful species on the planet, you, me, all of us should be really good at making security trade-offs. Yet, as we're learning, you know, yesterday and today, we're hopelessly bad at it. Right? The question is why. The, the short answer is we, we make trade-offs based on the feeling of security rather than the reality. But most of the time, this works. Most of the time, the feeling and reality are the same. Certainly, this is true of human prehistory. Certainly, this is true when our brains developed, when our intuitions about risk management developed. There's a lot of work being done in evolutionary psychology looking at how we make trade-offs and how we make decisions. And they all show up, all these, I mean, I'm going to mention some risk biases, show up because they make evolutionary sense. Right? We are a species of satisficers. Our brains do all sorts of cognitive shortcuts. I remember Mia said yesterday the plural of anecdote is not data. She's actually wrong. It's even worse. The singular of anecdote is data. Even worse, the singular of fictional story is data. I mean, we, res we are a species of storytellers. We respond to stories. You can read as much crime stat you want in New York City, and it won't affect you. Your cousin gets mugged when he was vacationing last month. You're not going. 
that is the way we think. Right? That's stuck on an airplane. You know, great movie plot. And we can imagine it, right? It's got Bruce Willis starring or Matt Damon. And we know how it comes out. And, and, and this is what we fear. Right? Our, uh, our brains do this because in prehistory it makes sense. I mean, we, we, we get our risk perceptions from our sensory input. Right? These days, sensory input comes from, from, comes from the media. It comes from stories. Right? Uh, so a movie is much more salient to us than dry data, even though it's fiction. It's the, the TV series 24 does more to affect foreign policy and, and so domestic terrorism policy than any data to us, to, to people. Right? I mean, the, one of the ways cognitive, uh, sorry, evolutionary, evolutionary psychologists put it is that our brains are optimized for 100,000 BC. I mean, we are really good at making security trade-offs endemic to living in small family groups in the East African highlands at 100,000 BC. Right? 2009 in Washington, D.C., you know, not so much. Right? We're less good at that. And we'll see, the media does perturb our risk perception, right? Because it makes rare things seem more common because they're more talked about. I, I tell people, if it's in the media, don't worry about it. Right? The definition of news is something that hardly ever happens. That's what news is. So if it's in the news, don't worry about it. When it's so common, it's no longer news. Automobile crashes, domestic violence. Those are the risks you should worry about. But that's not the way we think. There's a lot of work done. I, mean, I didn't print or reprint the paper because it's long. But if you go on Google and type psychology of security, there's a long paper I wrote on a lot of these issues, on, on how we perceive risk and cost and trade-offs. And it's a huge confluence of research from experimental psychology, behavioral economics, cognitive science, game theory, neuroscience. I mentioned evolutionary, evolutionary psychology, uh, anthropology, sociology, some philosophy. There's a lot of really interesting work being done here. Maybe I'll give you some sort of biases and risk perception, and some of which we've heard over the past couple of days. Right? We exaggerate spectacular and rare and downplay common. Right? Flying versus driving. If you're flying home, the cab ride's the most dangerous part of your trip, especially here in D.C. Right? The unknown is perceived to be riskier than the familiar. It's riskier over there in a foreign country where it's strange than it is here, even though the crime rates might, might not be the same. Personified risks are greater than anonymous risks. You know, we made, we made bin Laden more scary because we use his name a lot. Uh, we tend to overestimate involuntary risks and underestimate voluntary risks. Very strong cognitive bias. Once you do it, you kind of decide it's okay. So, you know, earthquakes versus smoking. I mean, I mean so some of those examples. So I tend to have a very relativistic uh, theory of security. It depends on the observer. And I think that goes a lot to explain some of these, uh, oh, some of these budgetary anomalies we're seeing. That every security decision has multiple stakeholders, and the stakeholder that's in charge of the decision will make the decision that's best for them. I mean, you'll see this uh, in, in families, in businesses. You'll see it in nations. So to understand what's happening... Not only understand how security works, you need to understand who's making the decision and what I think of as their agenda. I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean what they bring to the decision. 
Right, so you saw this uh, very graphically in the debate about a year after 9-11, whether you should arm airplane pilots. You see the agendas. The airplane pilots were all in favor of it because, you know, Karen Guns is kind of cool. Uh, the flight attendants hated it because they had this scenario in their head of <clears throat> the pilot and the gun on this side of the door and the terrorists and them on that side of the door, and they just hated the way that came out. Uh, the uh, airlines kept thinking holes in my fuselage right, and framed the debate that way. Pretty much everybody else took this as a referendum on gun control. And depending on whether you thought of gun control is what you thought of the issue. Very little debate on the actual merits of the policy. Right? That's agenda. And very often, security decisions are made for non-security reasons. And I think this is extremely important for all of us to understand. Security is so often not about security. It's about something else. So when you think of agenda, remember the question I asked uh, the first day about how is it politically tenable for the new administration to, to not do things? Because your agenda is to overestimate the threat. The agenda of a government is to overestimate the threat. You want to be seen as doing something. So visible is better than invisible. Funding Arabic translators, nobody sees. A new program, everybody sees. Spending money is better than holding back. Creating new is better than fixing old. Response is better than preparation. I mean, if, if, if I'm the new administration and I prep and nothing happens, I've wasted my money. <laughs> Worse, if something else, something happens in four years or eight years, the other guy gets the credit. Right? I, I, I am smarter as a politician to hold the money back, and when something happens, a Katrina, some kind of event, to spend money then. Because it looks like I'm doing something. Right? What's the agenda of the police? The agenda tends to be for police state-like security measures. Not because they're evil, because that's the way they think. You put the police in charge of trade-offs, you tend to get identification, surveillance, arrest and detainment powers. I mean, those are the sorts of things that a police is going to want. Because that's, you know, that's their agenda. Now, you put corporations in charge of security, you tend to get security trade-offs that equal business trade-offs. Right, which makes great sense in some circumstances and no sense in others. So depending on who is in charge of the decision or in greater decisions who has the most influence, that's why you get some of these odd responses. I, mean, I think that the, DA, the DHS constant budgeting is because sort of the agenda was no one wanted to piss off anybody. Right? This is a windfall, let's all get it. So the decision was not made for security reasons, but for political reasons. It might be valid, but as security people, it kind of pisses us off. So one last point, and I'll sort of get, get off. If economics, if the market drives security, right, people are making trade-offs. They're making trade-offs based on the feeling of security and not the reality. So the economic incentives, it was both for, both for you know, in business and in a political sense, are to make people feel secure. And there are two ways to do this. You can make people actually secure and hope they notice. Or you can make people just feel secure and hope they don't notice. Both of those work. Right? Both of those satisfy the economic incentive. So the question is, what makes people notice? When do you notice that the feeling of security doesn't match reality? Well, you notice when you have an understanding of security 
the systems, the limitations, the threats, the risks. Right? You know what's going on. When there are enough real-world examples, right, if I do some security theater to reduce the crime rate and it doesn't go down, you'll notice. Because there are enough examples right, in your neighborhood, in your community, that you'll know, but this isn't working. As that's important. <clears throat> Security theater is exposed when it's obvious it's not working. Right? So what makes people not notice? A poor understanding of the risks of the costs, not enough examples. This is a problem we have in terrorism. Right? It's, we have an inherent problem here of low probability events. I, mean, I remember Ashcroft saying about two years after 9-11, uh, it's, it's been two years and there have been no terrorist attacks. That proves my policies were working. And I'm sitting in the audience, I actually was there, I was thinking, there were no terrorist attacks two years before 9-11. You didn't have any policies. What does that prove? It proves that terrorist attacks are rare. Right? And, and the other thing, and the thing that's hardest to deal with, is feelings that cloud the issue. Cognitive biases, fears, folk beliefs, right? bad models of security tend to make us make non-optimal security decisions. So what does all this apply that Obama can do? You know, a lot of what he can do is to reframe the debate, right, to talk about this differently. I mean, in addition to doing things, I think the most important thing he, can, thing he can do is talk about it differently. Thinking about eight years of talking about this wrong and some, some talking about this better, I think it will go a long way to making us feel safer and accept policies that make us actually safer. And with that, I'll go off. Thank you, and good morning. Uh, it's a tough crowd to follow. Uh, they said more or less everything that I wanted to say, so I think um, I'll just say the opposite. Um, I, you know, I think the, the sort of disadvantage of taking the sort of very technocratic um, cost-benefit approach, trade-offs and everything that we've uh, seen here is that it, it as, as was Bruce was implying, it doesn't really sort of reflect the real world. So I want to add, I think, to what Bruce said and sort of problematize how the government uh, deals with this problem and and get some sense of why it doesn't deal in cost-benefit analyses, probabilities, and rationalities. This is difficult for me because I have to admit in the sort of privacy of my boudoir, I am a technocratic soul, and I actually am more worried about um, uh, the cab ride to the airport than the airplane trip. Uh, and so I get frustrated when I see uh, security theater. Um, but these are some of the things that help me to um, not yell at the TSA guys, so they could be helpful to you as well, because that, that turns out to be a bad idea. <laughs> um, I think, as, as was, I think, mentioned yesterday, uh, and as often said, uh, terrorism is fundamentally a political act. Um, and it relies on a certain uh, social uh, psychology to work, uh, some, of what, some of which was what Bruce was talking about. Uh, and uh, if, if, in fact, um, we had the very sort of technocratic view that has been espoused by people like me, a terrorism wouldn't work at all. 
um, because no one would pay that much attention to it. Um, but I think we've seen that it, it does work and, and, to a certain extent. And taking that into account, we should assume that when a government formulates a counterterrorism policy, it will be similarly politically focused. It will be, it will be focused on the political goals of the government as opposed to the political goals of the terrorist, not on uh, these sort of technocratic trade-offs. Um, I think two insights flow from this sort of understanding of, uh, of counterterrorism as a political act. Uh, first is the sort of uh, the worry that the government has about um, the dynamics of a, ter- of a terrorism, counterterrorism campaign. You know, uh, it's a lot more likely that a hurricane is going to destroy one of our cities uh, than a, t- a terrorist will. We have some examples of that. Um, but if a hurricane does destroy one of our cities, uh, it's not going to go back and talk to its, ter- to its hurricane friends and say, look at how easy that was, or, gee, look at the impact I had by destroying this city. Uh, in fact, its hurricane friends won't know anything about it. Um, terrorists do do that. And we've seen how in societies where these things are unchecked, they, they acquire a sort of snowball uh, f- uh, feature where they uh, uh, roll on and they, uh, when, the, when the terrorist attack seems, is seen to be possible and is seen uh, to have an effect, uh, it creates greater incentives for other people to do it. And, and uh, I think we have some examples of uh, how these things can sort of mature, snowball, become counterinsurgencies, and really get out of hand. It's not something I'm exactly worried about in the United States, um, but it is a sort of feature of the way that the government thinks about this problem. Uh, they are overprotecting against initial attacks because they believe that if one goes through, that creates greater incentives for others. And so they are sort of prote- uh, protecting against the snowball even beginning. Um, the, the second insight that flows from a, thinking about counterterrorism as a political act is comes a, a little bit from uh, one of the things that Bruce was talking about and thinking about the interests of uh, the government. Um, I've done a lot of sort of comparative work on counterterrorism, uh, looking at the way that different governments have dealt with the problem of terrorism. And one of the things that I've noticed uh, is that uh, they all seem to have these problems. To in, They have varying uh, manifestations of them, but in fact they all overreact. Um, uh, and w- when you sort of do the comparative studies, inevitably the comparative studies sort of say, well, we should learn from past experience of governments and not do this. Uh, and then we send these studies to the governments and they do it anyway. Uh, and so my thought here, and this was not one that was very popular among my colleagues, was that maybe this couldn't be solved by social science. Um, because it wasn't an intellectual problem. It wasn't that the governments didn't understand that they were overreacting. It was that they were overreacting for a reason. And this gets at what the political strategy of the terrorists is. Uh, it's not destruction, as we should all understand. Um, because there isn't, they're not getting close to the level of destruction that can really have an impact on the society. It is, I think, fundamentally to break down the relationship between uh, the population and the government. It's to convey the message to the population that the government cannot 
protect them, that it isn't fulfilling its basic state function of uh, being the uh, monopolizer on the being having the monopoly on the legitimate use of violence. Um, this is not strictly speaking a threat to the population. Uh, this is a threat to the government, uh, and the government must and will react to this threat, and they will react to the threat as such, not as a threat to the population, but as a threat to them and to their function in the society. Um, and so uh, what we should expect would flow from this is the reaction is similarly not precisely to protect the population, but rather to reestablish and to reassert itself as the, project, as the protector of the population and as the uh, monopolizer of leg- legitimate use of violence. This is, I think, quite similar to what Bruce was getting at, but putting it in different terms. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised in that context that the reaction uh, will not always provide, uh, from a technocratic view, uh, the most cost-effective uh, security. Um, because the government is more aimed at demonstrating its protective function and reasserting its protective function vis-a-vis uh, relative to what the terrorists are trying to break down, responding directly to the terrorist strategy, than it is at making the population more secure. Uh, and I think we can see this in a host of realms. If you, if you look at uh, airport security, it's very interesting. Um, in, if you look at the 9-11 report that talks about what happened in airport security in the, in the 9-11 attack, um, the... There was a failure in airport security, but it wasn't a failure that came from the private provision of airport security. The security contractors who were running airport security at the time followed the uh, federally mandated guidelines uh, quite well, but the federally mandated guidelines didn't protect against this type of attack. Uh, Nonetheless, the reaction of the government after 9-11 was to federalize airport security. It had nothing really to do with the attack. But by doing that, they were able to reassert that they were taking control of this problem, that they were responding uh, to, uh, the, um, to, to the specific attack that the terrorists had, that they were taking in hand the protective function uh, that appeared to have been lost. Uh, and I think we can, uh, we can trace that type of government response through a lot of these counterterrorism measures, which appear irrational and from a a cost-benefit analysis probably are. Uh, But um, in in terms of advice to a new administration, I think if you're going to ask, you you can't really ask the government to not fulfill that function. You can't really ask the government to do a lot of the things that Bruce was recommending, whereby they... um, uh, leave security to their successor are not seen as being protecting because that will break down even if it even if it doesn't mean that the population is unsafe that will break down the relationship between uh, the government and the population and that is after all what the terrorists are after they're not after uh, trying to blow up every building in the country um, so I just wanted to maybe problematize that a little bit and I'll uh, end there thank you
All right, well, thanks. Um, let me just mention before we go on that uh, uh, Bruce's uh, books, two of them, I believe, the ones I mentioned, are, uh, should be on sale upstairs uh, if they're not already uh, in an hour or so. Um, let me just follow up on uh, what, what Jeremy just asked uh, with a, with a, a start-off question for anyone who wants to answer, which is uh, on the panel, that is, uh, uh, which is, um, is there a way to reconcile the sort of uh, technocratic or platonic guardian view of security that we've heard about here, which is, you know, the threat's overrated, we're responding to things that um, uh, cause us to react emotionally as opposed to uh, probabilities, uh, is there a way to reconcile uh, that sort of view of security and homeland security uh, with political reality, which is that you know people demand protections against things that uh, people who study risk for a living uh, might not like? And I, you know, I have my own ideas about that. I don't. I don't think uh, these two things live in, in total opposition. But uh, I just wonder if any of the panelists have thoughts on that. Sure. I think you reconcile by understanding that it's it's a non-security benefit that's being provided. I mean, those National Guard troops, even though they didn't do anything for security, they made people feel safer flying. And if you remember back then, the no one was flying, everyone was scared, and that was a good thing to do. So often these, these overreactions from a security perspective have value somewhere else. And often if you look broader... At the, broader, at the broader goals of some of these policy decisions, and some of them might be, you know, keep the party in power in power in the next election. That, that's why. And, and, I mean, it's less reconciling, more understanding where it comes from. So maybe the leverage point to dealing with it would be a non-security discussion, a political discussion, right? It, is it really politically the best thing to do to do this, or can we do this other thing? We want to separate out um, the two different struggles here, and uh, the one struggle is a political struggle. Uh, I see it as like an insurgency. It's against the terrorists, and ultimately we want their political defeat, right? How we get that is very different from most of the stuff we've been talking about. Uh, and so there are things you can do that make people feel better. Um, I would say do them, do the symbolic actions, but don't spend very much money on them, you know? And that might be the way out of this is... Pay attention to the real fight. Do what you need to do for political reasons. We tend to conflate the two. And so I had, I had an example of um, <clears throat> Witchy Watchy Springs, which is a, uh, a mermaid, uh, mermaid. People dress up as mermaids, and they swim in Florida, right? And so the Department of Homeland Security, pressured by Congress, gave money to the mermaid park to protect it from terrorist attack. Okay? That's good. But we probably didn't need to do it. So if there are things with some guy in an airport, you know, parking a policeman in front of a monument, do you feel safer? Yeah, you probably feel safer. Are you safer? No, you're not safer. So if, if you, you want to take a step back and be a little more Machiavellian, fight the real fight, do the symbolic actions you need to do politically. Don't spend a lot of money on them. It strikes me that it's the job of leadership to have a frank conversation with the public. And we never really had one. The conversation we had was somewhere between go shopping and be really scared. But there was never a conversation about, look, these threats really matter or those ones don't or, you know, these things we can do, but we can only do so much. We're going to have some more attacks. And so it strikes me that it is the job of leaders to get away from the politics of fear and the politics of blame when the next one comes. Um, they, they, they really could do a much better job than was done in the last administration. 
Well, I'm not as optimistic about that, I guess, as, as Cindy is. I do think I, I see this to some extent as uh, inherent, and I, I'm not even sure I'd recommend a frank conversation with the American people. <laughs> um, the, Have you ever met the American people? Yeah. Um, the, I, I think that the way into it has been the what um, what uh, some people have been talking about is the is the budgetary angle. Um, because there you create an interest in pushing against uh, some of the more wasteful spendings. And I think, you know, as in, in a time of budgetary stringency, there is some hope of that. Uh, I'm not clear if we're in a time of budgetary stringency, but were we to, but were we to enter one, that would certainly um, matter. And you can see how – I said that all governments overreact, and I think that's true. But you can see how our overreaction tends to take a high spending – a higher spending plane than most in – the example I like to use is um, is to look at the uh, French and American reaction to the possibility of bombs being planted in in waste baskets in subways and places like this. Uh, in France, they had actual attacks with this, and they responded uh, by taking all the waste baskets out of the metro and the public places and replacing them with um, a metal ring with a clear plastic bag on it. Um, that uh, says vigilance on the bag. Uh, it's been very effective. No more attacks, as far as I can tell. I think those bags cost about a penny. <laughs> um, the U.S. reaction has been to put uh, bomb-proof waste baskets into the metro. They cost $4,500. Um, so, uh, actually, I think kind of both of these things are an overreaction. It's really uh, not all that important or useful to see vigilance on your wastebasket 11,000 times a day. Um, but at least one doesn't spend any money. And I would assert that uh, that's because uh, in the French government they didn't have the money to spend or they had an institutional perspective whereby they could push that down for other priorities. And we don't tend to have that here. Okay. Uh, first question to Jim here. Other rules. Not your first rodeo. Thank you. A question, sort of in a seam between Bruce's point about security theater and Jeremy's about counterterrorism being a reassertion of government authority or government role. If security theater fails, isn't the government making a really bad bet? Doesn't that doesn't that show that the government's making a really bad bet? So if somebody goes and um, beats up the the national guardsman, steals a plane, and and flies it into a building. Well, now the now the government folks who who placed that bet on security theater really risk losing legitimacy. People lose confidence that the government can provide security. So, how do you what do you think about that? Can I go first. Can I go first? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, I think that's important, but I also think that it's the case, certainly in this example, that the government is providing actual security as well as security theater. Um, and it's not really very much through uh, the TSA, but in fact, they protected against the 9-11 attack recurring in about 1,100 different ways. Uh, they only needed one or two. Uh, and so the, the attack that you just talked about isn't possible. The problem for the government is that uh, – Actual security isn't enough because they have to be seen to be doing it. They have to be reasserting their role. They have to be getting into the social psychology in, in the same and opposite way that the terrorists are. 
and a cockpit, uh, an armored cockpit door, which basically solves the problem of the 9-11 attack, uh, doesn't do that. It's something of a risk. I mean, the, the idea is that if you put security measures in security theater measures in place, it doesn't work. So you're perceived as well. You didn't do the job. Well, we have a couple things going on. One, terrorism almost never happens. So it's a reasonable bet that if I, you know, just prayed to some anti-terrorism god, right? I mean, I, I was just effective as 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 the TSA. Congratulations. So when you have very rare events, it's a reasonable bet to make because the chance you'll be called on it isn't very great. And, and then the, if you do spend money and do the stuff, you know, maybe it'll be just as bad when you're, when you're called on it. Also, if the attack doesn't happen in exactly the same way, I mean, if you remember, we spend a lot of money making sure the terrorists don't do the same thing twice, right? We take away uh, guns and bombs so they use box cutters. We uh, take away box cutters and screws and they put explosives in their sneakers. We screen shoes, they use liquids. We take away liquids. They're going to do something else, right? This is a stupid game. Why are we playing? We're playing because as a politician, there's a really – there's a strong cover-your-ass mentality, Right? You have to make sure they don't do the same thing again because you should have known. Right? You saw that attack. You should have known. You should have prevented. Right? That will be the reaction. So if they do something different next time, it's much easier to say as a politician, well, they did something different. Right? I mean we do in airplanes. We didn't think about shopping malls. What do you think? We're clairvoyant? So I, mean, I think the political calculus – is still in favor of doing highly visible things whether or not they work. I wish it weren't, but I think it is. You know, we want to think of terrorism maybe in a slightly different way. It's not something that just happens out of the blue, right? So think less of it as these events and think more of it as a group that is engaged in a struggle with you. It's a political struggle, and they're using a certain set of tactics to defeat you. And your job is to defeat them first, right? Not to prevent them from doing things because you're not going to have 100% success. So how do we win this battle? And in that context, I think we need to ask ourselves, are there political things the government needs to do? Clearly, yes. One thing that I would say is after an attack, and George Bush is a classic example of this, when did he have his highest approval ratings? After the attack. One of the problems for terrorists and for attackers in general is the usual reaction, not always, but usual, is for support for the government to go way up. The government says reassuring things. It's seen taking a few steps. People want to fight back. And so if I was a politician, I would think, how do I harness that energy to ultimately defeat these opponents? Because if I keep responding to individual tactics, they'll just come up with a new one. Uh, Let's go to the gentleman right here. Uh, quick question. The uh, wastebasket incident actually addresses to my question. It's Mr. Chenier. Uh, wh- what do you feel is the role of industry and lobbyists who actually get and spend most of the money uh, allocated to security in driving up the federal budget with ideas like $4,500 wastebaskets? Well, a lot, of these, a lot of these spending decisions really can't be made by industry because of the externalities. I mean, there are, there are times when it makes sense for industry to protect themselves when the effects of the attacks are great. I mean, think of a chemical plant. A chemical company will secure the plant to the value of the plant to them, but they won't secure it any, resi- any greater amount to, the, to the, the risk to the community, to the country, you know, to, to things greater than them. 
So you tend to you tend to get good market competition for technologies, but less for how to spend the money. So it'd be great if you know for the wastebaskets, the the DHS went out and said, you know, we need ideas for making these wastebaskets more secure, and, and then the bomb-proof base wastebaskets can compete with the uh, you know clear plastic wastebaskets, and and we'd make a smart buying decision. Right? Places like that, markets work really good. You know, we, we're seeing that in, at, in the TSA in new detection equipment. And there's a lot of new research, new products, and stuff that works really well. The question of what makes sense to deploy is not something a market can answer. Anybody else? Uh, <coughs> the lady, uh, back on the right by the wall. Wait for the, just wait for the mic. Both. In the 50s, national defense meant investment in higher education and investment in loans so we would have an educated population. We haven't really seen that in this period, and is that a possibility, A? And B, we've all, you have all, and I think many of us here, think that well, good education, critical thinking, logic, social science, helps us some in the, so, the security theater <laughs> bit, which seems to me... As an educator, I'm invested in thinking that if I had more students less worried about money and more able to really study a lot, not around three jobs while they do it, they would be better students, smarter, and perhaps more able to resist this kind of essentially irrational praying to the National Security Guard. So am I just wanting to feather my own nest, or is this a real way to think? That's that's a tough one. Um, nobody else seems to be leaping, and so I'll leap in. Um, and I get it gets back to the rabbit metaphor here, which is we are the rabbit, okay? And how we do in making these decisions as a society, you know, organized under a constitution, will determine not so much whether we get eaten, but whether we get to be one of the top rabbits or a declining rabbit. And I would say part of the reason that we are a declining <coughs> rabbit at the moment is because we've had a hard time making decisions like that. So this year, the budget request is for about $60 billion for Homeland Security, the way it's defined by OMB. And if you think about what we spend on uh, research, for example, it's, it's considerably less, you know, basic research. So we've made a decision as a government, and just the way the rabbit makes a decision, uh, do I freeze or do I run, um, maybe it's not the right one. How do you get back to that, though, is a difficult problem. And I think some of it is we have to get some emotional distance from the events of 9-11. 9-11 gave people the belief that the terrorist attacks were inevitable and were unpreventable. And that's not true, right? They may be inevitable, but they're not unpreventable. And so <coughs> you, want, you want to get people to think differently. That's a good question. How do we get them to do that? So uh, quickly, there, there actually is money spent in higher education that uh, many universities do a lot of homeland security technology research. And there's some really great stuff coming out of it. And even if it's not relevant to security, there are, there are always uh, ancillary benefits to, to these sorts of research. So there is money spent there. And, and I do agree that critical thinking will help pretty much in any policy debate. Getting there is kind of hard. Um, yeah, let me just – I don't want to come out against uh, education. <laughs> that would be unwise, and I am um, educated. <laughs> um, 
and I and I think that you know education has lots of uh, ancillary benefits. I don't think education is actually the solution to the to the sort of social psychological uh, or cognitive problem that we're talking about, um, and and that's I think largely because it is. Uh, rational for human beings in any society to not be paying a great deal of attention to this thing, to not be deeply educating themselves in this particular field. And yeah, you can always have a, a sort of a stratum of, um, of people who uh, research this intensively and become quite technocratic on the problem, but that's never a possibility for a general public, and it shouldn't be. Frankly, the last thing we want is 300 million Homeland Security experts. Um, and so I think we're going to have to accommodate our policies, even if everybody had a PhD in something else. We're going to have to accommodate our policies to the fact that this is how people operate. It's how they should operate, frankly. Uh, and there's not much that we can do about it, even with education. I'd like to just say a couple things that pull the last two questions together. Um, one is that there's not nearly as much money spent in Homeland Security on investment. Um, as there is in the Department of Defense. And so the likelihood of seeing an iron triangle like you saw in the Defense Department um, between the Defense Department, the Congress, and the, the producers is seems less likely. Some people ask whether we have an emerging um, double helix triangle that pulls together the biotechnology um, uh, companies through the Congress and into the Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Health and Human Services. I don't think that's true, but you do see a big push in Congress by specifically by the members of Congress who have big interests, big biotech interests in their states toward bio um, s solutions to um, potential bioterrorist problem. So you do see that. And then I'll mention, while there's not a lot of money flowing to education, there is a substantial amount of money flowing from the federal government down to beef up public health infrastructure, again, because of the concern over bio threats. Uh, we'll go to the gentleman on the right on the, the left in the front section, right in front of Nina. No, 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 right here. Sorry. Uh, Vijay Nilekani, Nuclear Energy Institute. The oversight for DHS, Homeland Security, there are 112 Senate and House committees. And I, from what I understand, 400 congressmen oversee DHS. <laughs> and with the $50 billion budget, that sounds like a perfect storm for a pork barrel politics rather than very rational decision making. And the flip side is the body politic uh, promotes zero risk mindset, whether it's elected politicians, the media, the legal liability lawyers, they're all selling zero risk. And just like two Beltway uh, snipers were able to make two million people paranoid about filling gas. So with a zero risk mindset, it uh, plays into this, uh, this pork barrel thing. Thanks. Cindy, why don't you speak to the... Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, it's important to know that the, the appropriations committees did change their structure. And so now in Congress, there is a an appropriations subcommittee in each chamber that's directly responsible for the Department of Homeland Security. And that helps a little bit um, in, the, in this <coughs> dealing with the pork barrel issue. The second thing is that I think, first of all, there is still this um, disparity, this choppy, chopped up um, jurisdiction 
among the authorizing committees, and that's an important problem. But I think more than a pork barrel issue, it's an issue of bureaucratic politics. It's an issue that allows those those components of the Department of Homeland Security to retain a lot of the strength that they had before. In fact, really more strength than they had before because none of them was a very strong agency on its own before. But now they are relatively strong in part because they still have these committees behind them. I make a quick point on the, on the D.C. snipers. If you do the math, uh, they doubled the murder rate in the counties they were operating during the weeks they were at large. It was the, 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 the change was not very much, but the reaction was enormous. And if you think about it, they actually really pegged what makes people afraid. They were spectacular and rare. They were unknown. They had names, the D.C. snipers, that they were personified, and it was an involuntary risk. I mean, that is something – I mean, that's a perfect storm designed to make people scared, even though the math doesn't justify it. I will go to the gentleman right here. Following up on Jeremy Shapiro, um, would it – from a li- purely libertarian standpoint, would it not be um, recommended to disabuse the citizenry that our government can provide perfect security in any realm? Um, well, I don't, I'm not really sure the government would be interested in that. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, no government uh, – that, that's, you know, one of the things that primarily justifies um, government. And it's frankly not seems – doesn't really seem to be something that the uh, population is too interested in hearing either. Um, other than that, I guess it's a political winner. Uh, <laughs> I'll just say that if, you know um, – I don't want to say too much here, but if you look at regulatory agencies and the experience of regulatory agencies in trying to, you know, implement cost-benefit analysis, it's been not a complete failure, but something close to it in that, the, you know, the political demands will win, and only in certain circumstances, if the political winds are blowing correctly, can you um, limit what, you know, economists would, would call overly expensive regulation. So I don't think the, the history should encourage us a great deal. I'm feeling a little distance from the panel, I have to say, and this issue is a good one to touch on it, because... We're in a political – we live in a, in a democracy. It's messy. This is a new problem. It's going to take us a while to work through it. I have confidence – I really do have confidence that the American people will ultimately work towards a better solution. It's going to take a long time. And there are things, as the last questioner pointed out, the lawyers, the media, all sorts of stuff that makes us less capable of making a decision than we were perhaps a decade ago. When I look at the 19th century, I'm not so sure we're that much different. But I think we're on a path. It's just going to take a while. And there's things we can do as a nation to accelerate us getting to better solutions. Uh, this gentleman right here. Uh, I'm Captain Vata from the National Defense University. Can the, can the panel educate us on the if there is any uh, metrics available, the measures uh, to, to measure the Whatever the arrangement that the de- Department of Homeland Security had up to now since 9-11, if because, uh, as it said, that just because there are no attacks since 9-11, if you can't say that it is not successful, the system, because there were no attacks before 9-11 also. So uh, can the panel educate us on that? Um, I'm not sure I understood that c- completely. You said any metrics to measure DHS? Yeah. To measure the success of particular activities of the Department of Homeland Security? Metrics? Anybody want to take a crack at that? 
Um, yeah, I, I can I can take a crack at it. I mean, I don't know the basic answer is I don't really know. But what I've uh, observed is that uh, because the um, because the events are are rare, uh, so rare that you really can't even take a zero result as meaningful. Uh, the metrics tend to be not really measuring uh, the output, but measuring what they're actually providing. So there's a metric that says how many containers we screen, for example. But that's not a measure of security. That's a measure of, the, of, the, of the, how much the organization is doing. Um, and it's a, the, it, the link between that and security is just assumed. And this is where they tend to end up. Uh, as an organization, they're very interested in metrics, but they are struggling to have any that are, are, are really attached to the security function as opposed to just their operating business and reflect the decisions they've already made. They have some about um, attacks foiled and attacks made, and they have some that relate to the intelligence. But I, I, even the even the uh, the DHS doesn't really feel that those are are very useful. I'll just add a, a quick point on that, uh, which is that um, you know regulations, including Department of Homeland Security regulations, that cost a certain amount uh, trigger an executive order. That means they have to do a cost benefit analysis, and they've done some of the, some of that in the Department of Homeland Security. I just know it because uh, I looked it up with regard to the requirement that you have a passport, which is going to be implemented when you go to Canada. And uh, if you look at – and that's the sort of analysis that regulatory agencies have been engaged in for some time. Uh, Most of the time it's futile in that they're required to do these uh, regulations by law. So even if they find that it's not cost-effective, they still got to do them. And uh, if you look at this particular regulation with regard to passports, what you find is that they have some precision on on what it's going to cost in terms of the loss to uh, cross-border business travel, what they have no precision about is the benefit. And they basically say, how, how are we going to estimate uh, what benefit this provides in, in terms of less terrorism? And uh, so, uh, you know, they, they essentially punt. And it's hard to blame them because I don't really know how you'd go about estimating that. Uh, the, right behind the, the guy who just asked the question. I'm uh, Lieutenant Colonel Navid from uh, representing National Defense University. My question is, when we talk of security, with regard to terrorist threats, which should be the best approach of dealing that is proactive or we should be reactive, especially when we see it in the prospect of cost effectiveness and risk management? Okay, so proactive or reactive? Uh, I think, I, mean, I think some combination of both is required. What I tend to dislike is overly specific. I mean, uh, countermeasures that require us to guess the plot and the target correctly right, tend to have limited value. Because all they do is they make the, the terrorists make a minor change in their tactic or target. It doesn't make them go home and get a real job. You know, stuff that pays off, regardless of what the, the tactic or target is, tends to be more valuable. I mean, we, we talked about intelligence and investigation, emergency response. I mean, the, and, and so that's half proactive, half reactive. But they're proactive and reactive for everything, rather than you know, taking away liquid on airplanes or, or, or port screening for nuclear weapons. But those are all very specific. So I think it's less proactive versus reactive and more specific versus general is the correct axis to look at, at value. Proactive, I guess, depends on the tactics you use. And, and what I was thinking when you were talking was preemptive. And preemptive is probably uh, bad, right? I'll just say that. And we could have a longer discussion. But 
proactive in what's, what, what is the tactic you're going to actively use. And if it disrupts operations, if it deters people from coming terrorists, if it reduces their scope of activity, those are probably all good things. But there's, you know, a big difference between thus saying, okay, I'm going to launch missiles or F-16s at them, or I'm going to begin uh, intelligence operations to achieve those. So proactive depending on the tactic. Uh, gentleman right by the door. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, John Utley with the American Conservative Magazine. Uh, I, I've written an, on radiation limits, and if you search Google radiation limits, uh, the cities were told that 15 milliram was the uh, initial risk uh, it, over, over which there was personal danger from radiation. And uh, they've, the Doctors for Disaster Preparedness has written about this, that fire departments were prepared with Geiger counters showing anything over 15 millirem, I believe was the number, was a danger. When in reality, I believe the, the real threat to people is like 50 to 100 times that. That was the old limit from when they first started nuclear plants. Uh, are you all aware, that, again, the danger is what we do to ourselves, as the speakers have said, rather than what the, the enemy does, are you, are you all have any up-to-date knowledge on what the first... That is, if there's a dirty bomb in a city, you don't want to evacuate half the city because you've got the wrong radiation uh, measurements. And that's what uh, Dr. Jane Orient, who, who's known Doctors for Disaster Preparedness, wrote, wrote about this. And it's, it's on the, under radiation limits on Google. Thank you. Anybody on that? Um, the comment kind of <laughs> for itself. Anybody else? Last question. Nobody. Okay, well, with that, we're about finished with our time, so thanks, everybody. We'll start up again in 15 minutes. Thank you.